Welcome to part one of this episode of the LDS Life Podcast with Laurie Westover. It is the LDS Life Podcast on Tuesday, May 3rd, 2022. I know it's been a long time since I have done a podcast on the LDS Life Podcast feed, but we are here and this is going to be a very special podcast indeed. Relay is my producer. I'm just going to introduce her really quick. She's from California, but no, she is not a liberal. So don't panic, folks. Uh, if those of you are conservative, they're listening. She's from California originally, then moved to Grand Junction, Colorado, and raised her son there. And now she is in Utah. And Relay, how do you enjoy uh, being on my podcast so far? I enjoy it. It's fun to listen to the conversations that go on and be able to participate a little bit as well. So thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. And I think uh, with some training and some other things, you will be a great producer. Um, That being said, let's uh, get started. Now, many of you know Laurie Westover. Say hi, Laurie. Hi. Now, many of you know that Larie's daughter, Tara, wrote a book called Educated. Now, we're not going to talk mostly about Tara. We are going to mention her in the podcast, but I don't want this podcast to be exclusively about Tara. I want to talk more about herbs and education. And yes, we will mention Tara because if I don't, people are going to complain to me. Oh, by the way, you can go ahead and like this on Facebook. And I'm going to set a new email for the podcast because the website is down right now, but the new email address providing I can get it set up. And I'll let you know in the intro of the podcast, Podcast at protonmail.com. That's Podcast at proton, P-R-O-T-O-N-M-A-I-L.com. Um, Laurie, go ahead and tell us how you and, well, actually, before we go there, Tell us about your childhood. Anything significant that sticks out to you? Do you have any pioneer stock or let's start there. Do you have pioneer stock and what was good about your childhood? Well, I definitely have pioneer stock. My grandmother, great grandmother came over from Denmark early on and they came here right next door down the road, a couple of miles. Um, They joined On your mom's or your dad's side? On my mother's side. Okay. Um, Dad's, they came a little later on, but um, my mother, my mother's grandmother, of course, came over from Denmark early on. They settled in a little town called Swan Lake, just down the road from where we live now. Um, It was that hymn, Oh, My Father, that brought them into the church. Her dad was very opposed to what she was investigating until he heard that song. He said, anybody who believes like that is worth following anywhere. <laughs> he proceeded to do so with his wow. entire family. Interesting. Okay. Wow. Well, that's, uh, that's interesting. That Relay, song is played to... at every family funeral. So. <laughs> oh, wow. Relay, I forgot to ask, do you have any pioneer stock? I do both mom and dad's side of the family. Oh, yeah. Okay. So. Okay. So, Lorraine, my uh, dad's what? side of the family, the man who came across the plains, had his leg 
amputated on the way due to an accident. Oh, my gosh. And we're going to talk about broken he, bones later in the podcast, too. But go ahead. He became quite friendly with the Indians. And in one Indian uprising, the fact that he had doctored one of the chief's sons uh, as an infant saved his own two sons' life. They returned his sons to him in the middle of oh, the wow. war. So some okay. interesting stories in my genealogy. So. Oh, bet. Yeah. Well, uh, Larie, go ahead and tell us about your childhood. Oh, I should mention, too, by the way, Larie wrote a book. The reason I have her on tonight is because she wrote a book called Educating. Now, Tara, the daughter, wrote the book Educated, but Larie wrote a book called Educating, and it's not necessarily a rebuttal against the book Educated by Tara, is it? No, I named it that, not really to strike at my daughter, but because educating has been what my life's been about. When I was a young primary child of 11, they gave me the youngest class to teach. Oh, wow. And shortly after that, they put me in charge of the primary music and I led the music. I've, teaching is what I've done all my life. Every church calling I've ever had has been teaching or teaching the teachers. <laughs> okay. That's been, that's who I am. So... So is there anything that sticks out to your childhood that you wish to talk about? I, I had an amazing childhood, you know, nearly perfect summer vacations and um, three day family reunions on dad's side. I had some cousins that I'm still close to. Um, we had a good time. It was and my mother's philosophy was if you run out of something to do, come home. And so she always had, you know, games we could do was always game to turn her kitchen over to teenagers and just have fun and it was that was what you did you came home yeah your childhood sounded very wholesome reading now one yeah. thing that stuck out to me probably because i was one of these people at one point it sounds like your dad was a devout byu fan <laughs> and i used to listen to byu football very religiously when i was 10 up until i was probably about 14 15 and i would I'm not kidding. I would set aside Saturdays to listen to BYU football game. Get to the point where if I went to the, if I was going somewhere with my mom, I'd have her turn on the BYU football game. Now I lived in Ontario, Oregon, and then Boise, Idaho. So we had to turn it to the affiliate there in Caldwell, Idaho, that was carrying the BYU games back in 1990 up until about 95 or so. When I stopped following BYU, just because I got so busy, but was your dad ever the rain man of BYU football or any BYU sport I, for that matter? I don't ever remember him quoting statistics. Dad liked the personal stories. You know, I remember hearing stories of the, you know, this basketball player joined the church at this point. You know, he was always into the personal stories rather than the, than the statistics, but if dad was anywhere out in the yard, cleaning the garage, whatever, he had a radio, a little transistor, and you'd hear one sporting event or another playing pretty much all the time. He was quick to turn it off if, you know, as kids wanted to talk to him. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that always impressed me is that right in the middle of a game, if I said, dad, I got a question for you, you know, it was instant attention. So. Yeah, well, uh, my dad was a lot, much the same way. He loved to watch football. In fact, he had one time he actually had a TV in the yard so that he could watch football while doing yard work. One of those uh, 
semi-portable TVs. I say semi-portable because it didn't have a battery in it, but it, you could definitely plug it in on an outlet anywhere and watch TV. And my dad did that once, and I thought that was kind of cool. Um, I wasn't a sports fan either. So when they came to Provo when I was in college, of course, dad would go to the whatever game and with my brother and mother and I would go shopping. <laughs> oh, there you go. Now, uh, let's talk about how you met Val, and we'll uh, get into that, and then we'll talk about some other things. But uh, let's talk about, and by the way, these are all things from the book Educating, by the way, that we're discussing here. You can get that on Amazon and ButterflyExpress.net. So, uh, Laurie, what, how did you and Val meet? Let's start there. Okay. Well, our senior year in high school, I took a job at a combination bowling alley restaurant. I know that sounds weird, but that's what it Not was. Really? It was a Those were bowling alley with then. a large dining room that, you know, the Lions Clubs and various places met. And he would come in there with, the, with various friends. And that's where we met. It was right there, our senior year in high school. And what inspired him to take you out, do you think? Because obviously there's a story there. Well, but that would kind of be his story, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, what's your version of the story? My version of the story is that he, I don't know, he just wanted to, but he knew I was dating another guy kind of seriously. And so he held on kind of keeping an eye out. And One morning on his way to school, he turned around, went back home and called me. And that happened to be just after I had promised my parents that I would go out with the next guy that asked me, somebody different than the one I was dating. And lo and behold, within five minutes, he called and I said yes. And that was the beginning. All right. Now, you and uh, Val have something quite unusual that happened. I have never heard of this happening in my entire life. You two were engaged while he was serving a mission. I would think that that would be very hard on you because me, I would be scouting around other ladies and wondering who I should date. If I was engaged to a sister missionary, I don't know that I could last that long. Maybe it's just me. I'd say, Oh, so-and-so has a hot voice. I don't know. I, I, I would sure want to date her. I guess it depends on how really devoted to her I was. I think the word you're looking for is commitment. We were very definitely, you know, matter of prayer, very committed. I'd done enough dating. I was at BYU and I had a couple of good roommates and it was great. I loved it. Focus on my studies, study the scriptures, study gospel talk to you, topics, run around wherever I wanted to go, travel a little bit, figure out who I was without some guy telling me who I should be. Yeah, I just yeah. really had a good time. It was a marvelous time for me. I joined a BYU um, dance class. It was dances of various cultures around the world. And that was really fun because I discovered that BYU boys are leery to dance with the same girl in their dance class twice for fear she'll think there's something going on. But since I had that ring on my finger, I was safe for everybody. I, it was just, it was a good time. I, I just really enjoyed it. it was, of course, the second year I was done with BYU and had a job at a really nice computer company that was just lots of fun. Those That was good days for me. I guess what would have driven me crazy, and maybe it's just me, I would just be thinking, okay, I hope she's going to like me when I came back, because what if I changed a whole lot or 
I hope uh, things don't change too much. I guess that would be constantly on my mind, but it was never on your mind. Well, you know, the only thing really permanent about life is change. Of course, he would come home changed. But I still remember standing there in the airport between his parents and he walked off that plane and he'd found a cowboy hat. He had a cowboy hat on his head. And I thought, okay, that's a signal to me that while we've both changed, things are still the same. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that because I've talked to Val a few times. And as an interesting side note, I think I told you this, Lori, your husband sounds almost exactly like Clive and Bundy. <laughs> so uh, take that as you will. Uh, I think that's a good thing, though. Maybe so. Yeah. Anyway, um, so, yeah, so you, you're engaged on your mission. Did it drive Val crazy, though? Because I, I think he'd be constantly wondering, or maybe not, oh, I hope Marie will still like me when I'm back. I hope, but I guess if you were that committed to each other. Well, uh, I don't think he really had much of a worry about that. I, He didn't have to worry about his future, didn't have to worry about finding and deciding who to marry. Like I said, that word commitment kind of played in there. Yeah. We, Interesting. We just, and no, two years isn't that long when you know where you're going and where it's going to be. You know, it well, just, there's one good thing about this story, though. Um, at least you didn't have to sing the song, Will I Wait for You, like the Saturday's Warrior play, did you? <laughs> no. <laughs> or you didn't have to worry about getting Dear John because uh, you met somebody named Todd Richards or whatever. <laughs> or, or he didn't have to worry about it anyway. No, right. he didn't have anything to worry about. All right. Uh, Relay, do you want to ask a question here? No, I'm <laughs> sorry. I'm just, That's okay. I'm just listening. Okay. So. All right. So now we get into the fact that you had children and decided to become a midwife. What made you decide to become a midwife? Well, I kind of think it probably had a little bit to do with that, my own first birth experience that didn't go the way I wanted it to so much. And when I got pregnant the second time, I was looking for other options. And just you want to talk about that, that first birth experience? Oh, not really. No. Okay. You'll have to read the book. <laughs> they had a out. rather understaffed night and they were busy and we kind of got left off in a little room, leg on flat on my back with a monitor across my tummy and not anybody checking on me or much of anything going on. And didn't seem like that was the way a birth should go. Okay. Just uh, ahead of the second birth, uh, a neighbor, a friend, an elders quorum president brought us the name of a midwife and we met with her and there we were off and running. Okay. And so from the time you had your first kid to the time you became a midwife, how long was that gap? Oh, I don't know. What, Tony was in the mission field. Oh, okay. Interesting. I spent a lot of time, though. You know, I was assisting and following the midwife around, you know, long before that as much as I could. So I don't know. It kind of a lot of years of training and a lot of years of following a midwife before I actually went off on my own so okay very interesting all right so and uh, so you were not forced to become a midwife then you felt inspired and you and Val talked about it 
And over time, you decided it was good. Val did not make you become one, like other people would think. That's a strange way to word it. It was more like him having the confidence that I could do it. And then he was coming up with a little bit of money here and there so I could purchase equipment and purchase books and, you know, the gas money to travel around behind the midwife and encourage me to study and listen. And when I'd come home, he'd listen endlessly to my tales of what I'd read or heard or learned or seen or. Did I feel pressured? Well, yeah, but the pressure wasn't coming from my husband. I knew that was one of the steps heaven wanted me to take. So husband's one of those, let's get in and get going, you know, let's get it done. And yeah, he, I've often said and meant it that I wished I'd supported his dreams as wholeheartedly and enthusiastically as he does mine. <laughs> but, you know, no, there was, there was a daddy force. Well, I would imagine gone, though, he was feel... home with the kids and responsibilities you know well i would imagine that you would feel pressure in terms of oh i got to get this done right what's what's going to happen if i do this wrong i'm sure you felt those kind of pressure especially back then when being a midwife, being a midwife was not cool i don't know how it is now well so did you feel that you had to prove yourself i got to do this right so that people will trust me and the doctors will trust me you know it never was about money or fame or fortune or people looking at me i really wanted women to have the best birth experience possible and once i had my home birth baby the peace and the quiet and the spirit there and the way you know you just want to do that you want to do that for other people and I, yeah, there certainly wasn't a financial reward to it back then. Because, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, um, so what, uh, what uh, spiritual experiences did you have with giving birth? Or I'm sure that, because you indicated in your book that you felt the spirit a few times. Well, among my midwife friends and assistants and the lady I followed around, we used to refer to it as walking in a shaft of white light. the spirit was just there. It was a calm and beautiful experience. And you knew that, you know, you'd studied, you'd read, you'd done everything you could. And if you'd missed something, the spirit would teach you and talk in whole sentences if it needed to. I've been on births where I mentioned this one in my book, or when you and I've talked before that cord wrapped around that baby, every which way around the neck, up through the crotch, around the chest and several places where a Uh, tight cord pulling could have caused that baby damage and I watched a group of women all reach for a different place little fingers slipping under that cord and taking the pressure off it while the midwife clamped and cut nobody reached for the same place nobody stumbled over each other nobody said a word you just acted in unison it's just the way it was so I assume uh being a midwife you probably had um assistance with you correct oh yes Okay. It's more than a one person job. (laughs) Yeah. So what is more, do you find it more spiritual than the hospital? Because not everybody is quickly pacing around the room and doing this and that, and you're hooked up to monitors. What do you think makes it a spiritual experience as opposed to? I think one of the things is that the husband, I mean, I guess he's there in the hospital too, but The husband is right there. He's to work. He's holding pressure points that need to be held. He's supporting his wife. He's walking around with her. Um, Sometimes he's holding points, holding up the belly. 
sometimes the husband and wife are just quietly, quietly working together. I've seen a similar situation between two sisters and the midwives are there to keep track of things, there to check on things, there to make, but no, you're as, I used to tell my assistants, if a lady recognizes you later, you weren't doing it right. Your, oh. your background, you're there. No, this is a husband and wife thing. This is for their, they're there to make sure everybody's safe and that it turns out well, but you're not there to be center stage. By the way, this is not to say that an OBGYN doctor cannot feel the spirit while delivering a baby in the hospital room. I'm sure that one has, so don't come at me saying, well, oh, I no. had a spiritual experience in the hospital. Yeah, I'm sure you have. If, oh, I'm sure. If you've done, but this is, you know, Larie's story in her book. So we're going to go off of the book here. Um, yeah, so you've been... Uh, do you want to talk about the most spiritual experience you had as a midwife or have they all been about the same? Oh, no, there's a lot of variety, but I don't know how you'd pick the most because every birth is its own experience. You know? Okay. Our little, our little boy that was born one pound, four ounces. That was a rather spiritual experience. Sitting back and watching these two sisters working together was quite the experience. Working with a woman who'd had two forceps deliveries, pretty horrendous, and and watching that come down very quickly and, and softly and, well, a little excitement. Can I tell you a story? Yes. All right. This one lady, she'd had two forceps deliveries, and the babies had not gotten a really good start as far as nursing and things, and she decided to try for a home birth. And so we spent a lot of time working on diet, working on exercise, and she went clear to her due date for the first time. She was all antsy and not knowing what to do. And she said, well, haven't you got some kids in a play local? And I did. There were two of the boys were playing Tin Man and Scarecrow in Wizard of Oz. And so I gathered her up with her two children and we went to the Wizard of Oz. So there we were at 1030 that night and no sign of labor. And she's had a good evening, and dropped her off and came to my house. And towards morning before the sunlight, before the sunrise, we get this frantic phone call. Her and her husband have gone for a walk in the park across the street from their house. It was probably two blocks square. And they'd made it back through the door. Labor had gotten started and got really going. They called me frantically. I can get out the door in less than two minutes usually. And I drove 17, 18 minutes to her. As I ran up the front walk, I had a big picture window ceiling to floor. And I could see the dad standing behind the mother, kind of holding her up, and the little teenage sister of the mother kneeling in front of her. They were on a pile of nice, clean, washed towels. And I cleared the door just as the little teenager held up the baby and said, oh, look, now what do I do? <laughs> um, precious experience. I took over from there. Mom and dad were elated. No tears, no much bleeding, just mom and baby tucked in quietly and calmly and no little excitement, but you know, <laughs> preparation. She had done what I told her. She had eaten what she was told. She had exercised, she'd walked. They, she had done what she was asked to do. And the difference in the first two births and that third one were pretty amazing. Yeah. Now one thing All birth is an experience you earn. <laughs> it's not something you just stumble into. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I'm sure you had to do a ton of preparation on that. 
Oh, the mothers had to do the preparation. Yeah. Well, yeah, but I'm sure that you had to do a ton of studying and you probably studied night and day, I would imagine. <laughs> there was a lot. A, You'd yeah. be surprised the size and the detail of some of the books I yeah. Well, let's talk about herbs and essential oils. And then this is going to lead right into something that was dramatic between you and Val when you first got married. And we'll talk about broken bones. But first, I want to talk about herbs and essential oils. Now, something that I read that uh, you told me here over the phone as we were preparing for this podcast, as I read in the, your book, you can feel the spirit through essential oils. And I guess I'm a little confused here because all I do is put essential oils on. I don't pray about it or anything and they work. Uh, explain that because you made it sound as though, at least when we were talking over the phone, that you should pray about the oils or something to that effect and that you should show gratitude for the oils. And I don't do any of that. I just put it on and I'm not saying it's magic. It doesn't heal me right then and there, but certainly helps over time. So explain that. Well, you know, in the front of the oil book, we wrote a, a little part there and there's a couple of points made there and you mentioned gratitude and that's a very important part. I think if you have gratitude for the essential oils for the loving creator who established the world that, so that the things we need are available to us. Uh, gratitude just comes home to me in a myriad ways over the years. If you're grateful, everything works better. And be grateful. It's an example of God explaining to us what's best for us. He can do without our gratitude pretty well. But, you know, those herbs and oils, maybe the rocks and minerals too, I don't know personal messages from our heavenly father. Sometimes we don't always listen to what he says. And so he endows these plants with various things. If you've ever smelled a rose oil, it's very, very loving, very kind. Daffodil oil. I smelled one of those for the first time just a few weeks ago. And it almost smells like sunshine. It just makes you want to dance. It makes you want to want to be happy. And just you know, they affect us on a vitamin and molecular level too, but they bring peace and wisdom. And it's just an amazing thing. They're living things. And they, that's just the foundation of herbal medicine is that each plant exemplifies the attributes of a loving heavenly father and can help us sweeten and soften our own natures. Okay, I'm going to ask you about the oils that I use constantly. This is not a uh, plug for essential oils, by the way, but Okay. What about frankincense, lavender, and tea tree? <laughs> well, let's start with frankincense. That's mentioned in the Bible. Yes, it is. It was an oil used to anoint kings or to prepare them for their death. Um, lavender. Lavender is probably the most common oil in the world. Um, it's not. Oh, I don't know. Lavender is the greatest thing I know of for burns and to treat other skin conditions. Tea tree. It's, a, it's an oil that'll deal with infections and things like that. I don't like the smell of tea tree, so I have a few other oils I like just as well. But yeah, you've picked three good ones. Okay, so what I want to know, though, is if an oil smells too strong in your mind, 
Is that an example of the Lord being firm with his people in your, if an oil <laughs> smells very strong to you? I don't know. It's probably more. Their essential oils are distilled and they are very concentrated. It can take hundreds and hundreds of blossoms to make just a tiny amount of oil. So they're going to be strong. If it doesn't smell strong, someone's watered it down with a carrier oil. You don't have pure oil. They're designed to be intense. Okay. Yeah, I was just wondering if you found a correlation uh, between that and whatever, you know, God's firm love or whatever. Never. Um, well, well, part of it is that different oils speak to different people differently. I've never been real fond of the smell of rose oil, but I love jasmine, and they're both very potent, very strong. I, I don't know. Different people like different oils at different times. Yeah. Sometimes the very fact that an oil doesn't smell good to you is an indication that you need it, that whatever emotional thing it's bringing up needs to be faced and prayed about it and moved on past. Okay. Well, speaking of essential oils, you've had some pretty dramatic experiences with burns. Let's talk about Lucas's burn. You wrote about this in your book. And you wrote about how Lucas was uh, doing something and he forgot that his pants had gasoline and he lit a torch, I think, to get the gasoline out of the tank or something to that effect. I can't remember. I think he was he just carried a little gas gas can up there and it, some of the gas leaked onto his pant leg and he was waiting for his dad to get ready to leave. And he lit a cutting torch up in the scrapyard to cut up some and it lit his pants on fire. <laughs> Ouch. Yes. Just reading about it was pretty dramatic, but uh, what, what did you, you used mostly lavender, I think, and some other herb. And how did you deal with that? Cause it was pretty dramatic. Well, well, I'll tell you. Okay. I came yeah. up the driveway. I'd been off gathering some herbs that day. I came up the driveway and my son is standing on the front lawn with his leg in a garbage can. And he stands up on the little chair next to it and lifts his leg out of the garbage can. And yeah, it was kind of frightening looking. There he was wrapped in a little serape with a big hat on his head. And, and he was waiting for mom, my husband who had been there and, and had him set up. And had you gone back up to set the, put out the fire on the hill? And yeah, we dumped some lavender oil in there and sat up with him all night. Kept his leg in the water with lavender during that first night. Now, I usually don't have a problem with blood and injury, but gosh, that was my son. And I can honestly say that when it came time to change, change dressings, I could get busy somewhere else while my husband took care of that. Oh, wow. Yeah, looking back now, we didn't have a lot of essential oils. That was early in the essential oil days, but he's, he healed well, practically no scarring at all, full use of the leg, he even grows hair on that leg. And he tells us frequently that he's really grateful that we had enough sense and enough courage to trust and treat it the way we did instead of haul to a burn center. So, yeah. How long did it take for his leg to heal? Before the skin had totally grew back was several months, but before the summer was over, he put a garbage bag over his leg and swung off a rope into the lake, the local lake here. So, you know, 
but it was it was quite a while before the skin grew back. You'd see little patches, and then the patches would join together and turn into real skin. Yeah. Now, speaking of Burns, you had, and I know you didn't want to get into this too much because you said it was his story, but it is in the book, Educating. Well, uh, can you tell back, us? A, oh, what's back that? With Luke. Luke, we bought, we made a salve for Luke at, with the herbs that we had growing in the yard and on the mountain here on the hill behind us. And, and that was the basis of what we treated Luke, treated Val with too. We had made an herbal salve with all kinds of plants and things in it. Comfrey was one of the main things, plantain. Of course, we added a little bit of essential oil to each batch too. So we had the best of best of both worlds treated. Yeah. yeah. Miracle sap. My husband was burned from the waist up pretty much thoroughly. And yet we had no infection, maybe a tiny little bit on one ear. So we just paid closer attention to making sure he didn't sweat the salve off his ear. <laughs> no, there was never any infection, any fever, anything to worry about. The salve, the salve with the herbs and the oils kept the infection. It was never a problem, either for Luke or Val. And infection is quite often the biggest fight with a burn. Well, yeah, let's talk about Val's burn for a minute, uh, for a little bit. Um, it sounded real, more dramatic than Lucas's burn. And a lot more, a uh, lot more area covered. Yeah. <laughs> what's that? It was a lot more burned area on my husband than there was on Luke. Oh yeah. And the way that it was described in the story, it sounds very dramatic as far as almost burnt down into his esophagus or something. And pretty there's dramatic. Pictures, there's pictures in the book of him. You know, when an explosion goes off like that, you would instinctively gasp in and inhale we had Luke's burns were totally external. Val's were not. So they mm -hmm. were a little more of a, and like you say, it was a traumatic experience, but my, it was also some tender moments and family gathering. And, you know, there, it was a good time, traumatic, but spiritual and treasured experience. It's quite something yeah. for a couple. Um, real quickly there here. And I do want to get into this a little bit, the spiritual aspect. Uh, how did Val get burnt? Was cutting the gas tank off a off a car, an old junk car that he we have a scrapyard up on the hill, and he was preparing a car for being scrapped. And he'd done that a lot of times, and he knew what he was doing. I don't know exactly what happened, except that it went boom. Okay. Yeah, and so there was a part in your book where because you you were apparently confident enough that you could heal this burn. Well, I don't want to say the word heal, but you could uh, alleviate it almost to the point of getting rid of it. I guess you did get rid of it. Um, I can't use the word heal or the FTC or the FTA, FDA would come after. You me, haven't but... met my husband, have you? He doesn't look like a man who's been burned. <laughs> Full scarring on a hand and if you knew him before, there's a little difference in shape of ear, but no, you wouldn't notice. You wouldn't think burn if you looked at him. Okay. Well, the point is, is it was very spiritual. I guess he was uh, wondering, he was wondering if he should go to the hospital. He, he prayed about it and said, no, I don't want to go to the hospital. And he asked your kids about it, including your son-in-law. They and, gathered as a family, and each one set, turned saying a, a prayer, and then 
one was chosen to express the feelings of us all. So now if one of you or let's say two or three of you decided he should go to the hospital, what would have happened? Well, Val has said he would have gone. What he wanted was family unity. Yeah, okay. That was the most important thing. So and that was a it sounds like, according to your book, that was very spiritual and you put a whole bunch of lavender and a whole bunch of herbs on there. The miracle and, salve we used on Luke's leg. Only we went through seven gallon in the first couple of weeks. Yeah. Oh yeah. We had some big, large ice packs and we'd put wet towels and it would heat those. I mean, we're talking what two feet by foot and a half ice packs. And we'd lay those on cold, wet towels against his body and it would heat him through. And you can't believe how fast, I mean, his, his body put off heat for 48 hours or so. Oh my gosh. Wow. And how long did it take to have to have him where he was not monitored all the time? It sounds like he was monitored 24 hours a day, seven days a week for at least two or three months. It's what it sounded like in the book there. You know, I wish I could tell you how long it had been, but, you know, I kept notes of what I was using for him and different things, but the notes say Wednesday or Wednesday afternoon or Friday afternoon. But I had a dear friend that came. She was working here part time, but she just came and moved in. And I don't know, two, three weeks down the road, I looked at her and I said, you know, I really should cover you some wages. You've just been here full time for a whole week. And she just smiled, gave me a hug and said, well, it's a little more like three or four weeks. <laughs> Things were busy. We you, yeah, there wasn't a lot of time to sit and think about what day of the week it was and what was going on in your life. You know, it was a yeah. So I don't know. You okay. ask him, you know, how long did it take him to be healed? He'd tell you, well, he's not completely. There's still a little, little struggles here and there. So yeah. Okay. Speaking of Val, you had a pretty dramatic experience when you, or shortly after you got married, he broke his foot, and I guess. Something the cast wasn't working for some reason, and so you took the cast off and put a whole bunch of oil of uh, herbs on there. I guess uh, from a doctor's uh, recommendation, go ahead and tell us about that. Yeah, he broke his leg the first time just before we got married, just right after Christmas, walking across, walking down some steps on campus. And so he had that cast off in time for us to get married. And shortly after, after that, he rebroke that leg in the same place, and it shouldn't have broke there. It wasn't enough of a blow to do that. And one of the doctors that lived in our ward was one of the medical men for the, the college football team, and he was explaining to us how the college athletes they don't they don't put a cast on it; they keep it open so that it can be. They take it off, off and on, so they can massage it at least once a day and work with it. And so that's what we did with the second break. We soaked his leg in comfrey and other herbs and left the cast off. And it healed. It healed well that time and faster. What about, though, something dramatic, like somebody broke a femur bone? I would imagine the cast would be on there all the time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week until the doctor said, okay, you can take that cast because off. That's the way the medical world does it. And if 
you're a man that has to be up moving and making a living, I guess you're kind of stuck working that way. But if you can lay down and take care of it and work with it the way it should be, it'll feel better and faster. Would you ever though, you got to hold it still. You got to keep the bone in place. You can't be, you can't be messing with it. It's got to stay in place. So you'll be wrapping it and bracing it, but you want something you can remove and, and reach it too. Yeah, like but would you me. ever, if somebody broke a cast is on that first week or two, a femur bone? Oh, I don't know. I mean, that's a pretty, I know people who've broken a femur bone and wow, um, seemed to me, and this is just me speaking, that the cast did wonders, even though it was a pain to be in that thing for six weeks or three months or whatever. Well, I definitely want to cast it and I'd want to keep it there till that bone had started to knit and then they'd have to hold very still. You'd have to, yeah, you don't want to be re-breaking a bone. No, you don't. You yeah, properly. The incident that I'm thinking of, the guy was in the hospital. This is back in 1985. He was in the hospital and came out and he was in a wheelchair while in a cast. In fact, he came over to see us and he was in a wheelchair and we had to do a little bit of adaptation to, to let him get around. And this, I think he broke his his femur bone in June or July of 85, I think. I think it was mid-June and... His cast didn't come off until, gosh, late August, maybe even early September. How well, would I you certainly didn't that? see that, e that x-ray, but it would depend on compound fracture, how much damage there'd been, how many breaks there was to the bone, how, you know, poking through the skin, how much damage had been done to joints nearby. There's a lot of factors besides just a broken bone. Yeah, I'm just wondering if you uh, if you knew someone like that or a family member had a broken bone like that and they were into herbs and all, would you have used essential oils? Took we haven't dealt with any breaks that bad, but you definitely want to be taking the herbal teas with the comfrey and different things to aid aid the healing of the bone. Yeah, yeah. the The bones we've had broken once they were realigned, they they stayed where they were put. They we haven't had those kind of fractures like you're talking about with that guy or even walking with the cast was not allowed. No, that's beyond anything we've done for breaks around here. Okay. Cause I, I do have a story and I, I can actually remember the date of this October 5th, 1988. I broke my arm and it was very dramatic. And when you're eight years old, it's worse than when you're 20 in terms of emotional and everything. I, I just knew I was hurt. I was hoping it wasn't a broken bone. And, you know, like it was really bad. My mom took me to the emergency room, said a prayer for me, and they were going to pin my arm, but they, I don't know why they decided not to at the last minute, they decided not to, but do you remember those real thick plaster casts that they used to have? Yes. Yeah. I had one of those on and I hated every minute of it. And it actually did swell up my hand. So we had to go to the hospital the next day and they cut some of it off. And I, I, when I was reading about these broken bones, I kept thinking, how would Larie deal with my broken bone? Because it was pretty bad. Like I said, they were going to pin it and they decided not to, but it was in this real heavy cast. I remember waking up and I could feel the plaster, the wet plaster. It was obviously drying. And I had, they said that I was going to have it on for six weeks. Fortunately, I think I only had it on for about three weeks, probably. 
But I just I couldn't help but wonder, how would you have handled that? We would definitely have left the cast in place for a time. But the, mm-hmm. the secret to it would have been the herbs being given internally to help it heal faster. I mean, huh. comfrey is an amazing herb internally. Really? Interesting. It'll, it'll create a healing situation that's much faster than you would expect. Now, I know with your daughter, Valerie, uh, she had two casts on and you never did take the, well, what herb did you use, by the way, to help your, uh, to help Val heal? Maybe you told me, but I can't remember. For the bone, comfrey yeah. would be my number one. Yeah. In the herb book that I wrote, there's a recipe for BHM and it's got several good herbs in it, but comfrey is your key one for that far and away. Okay. Now. Iron um, calcium is the secret to that one. Okay. So would you have would you have me drink a lot of milk or just do the herb? <laughs> no. <laughs> Different kind of calcium. The best calcium is in green growing things. Gosh, like broccoli really? over milk. Because okay. <laughs> I know there's a big debate whether pasteurized milk is bad for you, good for you. There's this big debate we shouldn't be drinking milk at all. Um, I'm a milk lover myself and I'm a milk lover too, but I don't <laughs> that i consider it a health food yeah <laughs> i do love it i remember my brother said the reason you broke your bone is because you didn't drink enough milk oh, how oh okay so i drank a lot more milk <laughs> eat um, more salad no. <laughs> drink more comfrey yeah uh so why did you not because uh, you t- you talked in the book about your daughter valerie and how she broke her arm. I guess she broke her leg or something while sliding down her, the spiral slide. She broke, and, her, she broke her arm first the morning yeah, okay. of my sister's wedding. Oh, and that's we right. had it cast because it needed it. And then a few days later, I took her to see my sister when they, she was home from her honeymoon. And she was living on campus in the student housing. And there was this little play yard out front. And next thing I knew, my little girl in the cast had climbed to the top of a circular slide and come down it, cast on the side she should have been hanging on with. She hit the bottom, cement pad, and broke her leg at the same time. You know, what are you going to do with a four-year-old that hasn't got any sit still in her to save her soul? Never did have, still doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. You, you can't keep her still. You've got to keep a cast on it. There's, there's no yeah. choice. Was it a heavy, thick plaster cast? Well, all the casts back then were kind of the heavy, thick plaster. Oh, those were so annoying, weren't they? Or a more modern thing. Could you imagine being in one of those hot, in one of those thick plaster casts in 100-degree weather? They're no fun in the cold either. Really? <laughs> well, <laughs> do you remember the time uh, my husband went snowmobiling with his cast on? It got pretty cold. Oh, okay. I guess I just never, I guess it just never affected me because October is kind of in that time where it's transitioning between warm and cold. And whenever I was out in 70, 80 degree weather, it never affected me, but I could just imagine if I was out in a hundred degree weather. Oh my, not to mention when you would cut those casts off, your arm would stink really bad of sweat for all those weeks that it was in the cast. You remember I wouldn't that? know. I've never had a broken bone. Oh, yeah. Anyway, so I guess I don't know if I should get into this or not, 
I guess Val currently has, or not Val, Valerie has a broken bone right now, but it's doing well, I guess. And oh, yeah, yeah, she hasn't even mentioned it lately. Oh, okay. Yeah, and she took the cast off because of swelling, but I guess she's taking. She has a good and... brace with it with metal. And oh, okay. She's okay. got it braced very well. So. Okay. Well, let's talk about, let's get into herbs a little bit more. Uh, what is your favorite herb? And I'll let you take it over from there. Oh, that'd be like asking what's my favorite vegetable. Oh. I was going to say it would depend on rather I'm having a kidney infection or a migraine, you know, <laughs> it's just, no, no. Yeah. One, one herb fits all. There isn't really one. Comfrey comes close, but. Well, I want to get into one of my all-time favorite conversations, and this is a topic that I think we can spend hours and hours and hours on. We're actually going faster in this podcast than I had anticipated, but that's good. Uh, Education. Let let me speak to this herbal thing. You know, the one thing I am leery of, not my favorite herb in the world, but any herb that claims to do everything, I'm going to be really leery of that herb. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, your herb is depending on some herbs are like I when I wrote my book, it was like, this is my favorite herb for this. And this is my favorite herb for that. When I found that I couldn't even do it there and the same herbs kept turning up, you know, in one, one place and in another. But you no, know, you learn your herbs by system of the body they affect or you learn them by what vitamins and minerals they contain. And how that vitamin and mineral affects the body. It's, you know, you, you better, you better know a few herbs, not just one favorite one. Well, I would imagine too, and I've had this discussion with people who are really big into essential oils, who know a whole lot more than me. You know a whole lot more than me, but I had this discussion and I would imagine it's the same with herbs. People say, you know, I know somebody who knew somebody that used essential oils to help them get over strep throat. And she told me, you have to use it just like medicine. You have to take it, you know, you have to use this 10 days, twice a day, just like you would medicine. Is the same true with herbs if you're trying to get over an illness or strep throat or something like that? It's the same true. No, you don't take it till the end of the bottle. You take it until your body's own healing capacity takes over. But a lot of times why you're ill is a nutritional deficiency to start with. And how fast that herb will work will depend on how deep that nutritional hole was. When you fill the nutritional hole, your body will be able to do what it's designed to do. And that is take care of itself. So how long are you going to take the herb? If you're taking it for nutrition, you may take it for the rest of your life. I like to drink herbal teas just for the nutrition sake Mm -hmm. of them. But when I'm ill, I'll take an herb that has a reputation for fighting infection or making my kidney work a little better or whatever I might happen to need. So it'll, it'll totally depend. No, yeah, there's so very little correlation between an antibiotic and an herb. Okay. <laughs> so you're saying, okay, because you're saying I don't have to take this herb 10 days straight twice a day like I would a pill to get over a strep throat. Or whatever the oh, infection if it's something is. like strep, you better be taking that infection-fighting herb, and you better be taking it pretty faithfully, yes. Yeah. But you're okay. not going to have to worry about the side effects because it'll treat it like a vegetable. Your body will simply discard the excess. Interesting. Okay. 
And just real quick here before we move on to education, have you ever used an herb to, to treat strep throat or something like that? Yes. Okay. Many and, times. And did you have to take it, let's say, 10 days straight, two times a day, or how did you do it? Well, I drank it as a tea. I took it in a capsule any way I could. I haven't had an antibody in 30 years. Okay. <laughs> okay. Wow. I always treat things with herbs. And where do you draw the line? Because I personally think that there has to be a balance between where do you draw the line between essential oils, herbs, and an antibiotic? <laughs> like I said, I don't do an antibiotic. Okay. Um, when as a midwife, I insisted that my women have a backup doctor in case we needed it. And I think you, you know, there are times if you haven't done your education or you put off taking the herb, you didn't deal with something, you let something get bad. Perhaps there are those who would resort to an antibody. Hasn't happened here in the last 30 years. So okay, um, yeah, it's just depends on how much you know and what supplies you have on hand and how fast you got on it. Now, are your kids into herbs as much as you are? I know Tara's not, but what about your other kids? Tara's taken her batch of herbs. They, she got sick a few years ago and sent home for a whole pile of things because she'd used all of her stuff on her boyfriend. But oh, really? yeah, Valerie's very much into it. Most of my kids are to you know, some extent, at least more, some more than others. But Is your son-in-law, your daughter-in-laws, are they into it as much as you are or Valerie? Son-in-law certainly is Valerie and Daniel. Okay. Luke and his wife are definitely herbal. Huh. Um, Tyler, somewhat. Richard, somewhat. Yeah. Pence, Tony's. Yeah, they're all somewhat. Okay. You know, as I read your book, and this is a side note, and then we'll get into education. I couldn't help but wonder what you were eating every day for meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. As you, I can tell that you're very holistic. It would have been very interesting to stay with you for a week to see what you were eating. Well, we'd get up in the morning and have whole wheat pancakes. Mostly. Oh, those are good. I love those. I also like the multigrain pancakes. Go ahead. Yeah, multigrain pancakes. And while breakfast was cooking, I would usually fill a crock pot with a roast or potatoes and carrots or a big stew or, you know, something, because it's a lot easier to homeschool the kids if dinner's already cooking itself. Oh, yeah. I'd often fill two crock pots. There'd be one for dinner, one for supper. And you'd just do that while the kids were doing their schoolwork around the kitchen table. You prepared the meal as you went. We didn't eat sugar much back in those days. A 10-pound bag would last forever. Yeah, what did you use? Because I'm sure you had to bribe your kids. Oh, you can have this. You can have cake, but you got to have this. How did you handle that? Because kids love sugar. My, my dad was hyperglycemic and my mother learned to imitate just about anything the ward could come up with for a dinner. And I cooked mostly with honey. Honey was the big thing. We use a lot of agave now. I'm experimenting with Monkford at the moment. Um, yeah, we yeah, we had cakes and treats and goodies. They just weren't made with sugar. Really? That would have been very interesting to stay a week at your house to see what it was like. I'd be, I would have been, I still would be very curious. Don't forget to check out part two of Lurie Westover on this episode of the LDS Life Podcast.